Hello and welcome back to Blueprints, the podcast about political strategies. This is part two of our third episode, which is about Chloe Swarbrick and the Green Party's win in Auckland Central in the 2020 New Zealand election. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd go back and do that now. Where we left it then was Chloe's good performance in the first debate in Freeman's Bay. But what I didn't tell you in part one was that Nikki Kay wasn't actually there that day and National had had to send a stand-in because this has happened. The National Party is scrambling to find a replacement for its Auckland Central seat following Nikki Kay's shock resignation this morning. Kay is bowing out of the race, which has been hard fought over the years, with only 1,500 votes in her win at the last election. Political, political commentators are picking that that will give a massive boost to the Greens' Chloe Swarbrick, a bigger name than Labour's Helen White, who is also in the running. Very interesting morning. Because it happened early in the morning. I mean, it was, early, that's what I mean. I woke, up to, I, <laughs> I woke up to the news and I called Chloe and she didn't answer. And I remember just like the group chat going off, Twitter was going off, and just kind of, I don't take a lot of joy during a campaign. And so I was immediately like, why did this happen? What does this mean? How do we like take advantage of this? Like we didn't want to be seen as gloating or celebrating too much. We didn't want to like politicize it. First thing I heard from Chloe was she just said, we're going to win. Um, yeah. <laughs> I remember being at the bus stop and, she, and I was just like, you can't say that. I'm a very, I worry about jinxing things. Um, <laughs> but that, that changed things significantly. That's when a lot of people started to believe in us. That's when the math started to make a bit more sense. That when it, it stopped becoming, oh yeah, we're going to run against Nikki and see what we can do to... I remember that's when the campaign for me and I think for some of our team became a lot more stressful as well because it stopped being quite a long shot campaign to being like, oh, you could actually do this. And that's a lot more pressure. That's a lot more pressure because you can screw that up more than if you're just in there to throw punches and have a go and see what can happen and see how well you can do versus, hey, this could actually happen if you do a good enough job. That felt a lot more pressure to me. Yeah, completely, because the sort of weight of uh, a race was announced early in the morning, and it almost felt like the, the whole rest of that day was like, oh, well, what, what does this mean? And immediately, like, for, for better or worse, every time a volunteer signs up and they still are signing up, um, <laughs> I, I get an email and a little bit of a, a, a spiel of, about what they're into and why they've signed up, and I remember that day really really changed the frequency so you know i can feel it throughout the day when it's literally coming through my phone and that day both in terms of donations and people signing up was a switch of when the when the campaigns sort of started to get real in terms of yeah in terms of building resource right mm. for for a while before that we were we we struggled a little bit with understanding how much the finance the fundraising could really help and also understanding how many people would would turn out. After that point, it became really, really clear that we had this almost overwhelming momentum. That the, the the management of those things was more important than having to to ask and promote for for fundraising and for volunteering. Those things just flooded after that point. I think we probably don't talk much about fundraising and about having. We talked about the events that we raised money from, but we also got a lot of donations online, and we had a couple of really big donors who came in and helped. And that's, I wish it was less important, but it made everything so much easier. Mm. It meant that we could have an office. It meant that we could pay for food, for our volunteers to go and do stuff. It meant that we could have 
high-vis, not that there was a huge expense, but it meant that there were just opportunities that were open to us. It meant that we could, could have billboards on people's fences. It meant that we could have Facebook ads and video running. And as a kind of underdog campaign that had to fight for every vote, having a focus on fundraising, having someone who could focus on that being their contribution to the campaign was getting us money, making sure that that was coming in and that we started from that really early. We knew that that would be something that we needed in this campaign. I think it's something that was never a focus of the campaign. We were never like, oh, we're going to be the big spending campaign. (laughs) But I think it's important to acknowledge that that made a big difference. And lucky again, because of Chloe, it's really easy. A lot of people wanted to give $5 to help Chloe's campaign. A lot of people wanted to give $10 to help Chloe's campaign. It's not the most important thing in politics, but I don't want to underplay that donations make a huge difference in political campaigns. Having money does make a difference. At the end of the interview, this is something that Leroy stressed to me, that it was really important to include. Grassroots and insurgent campaigns do need money to work. There's that old saying in politics, you either organise money or you organise people. But what Chloe's campaign showed, and what similar movements in the US, UK and Australia are showing, is that inspirational and community-led campaigns can actually raise the same, and sometimes even more money, than corporate-backed candidates. And by the end of this campaign, they'd raised well over $50,000 mostly from people donating 10 15 $20. Yeah, it doesn't have to, like fundraising doesn't have to all be corporates giving you money in, you know, negotiation for your policy views or appearances or, you know, taking their phone call. Like we didn't do that. The money that we raised came from people who supported us and that kind of meant that we could do things we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, like have an office. As we've heard already, a key part of what they thought would be crucial to building a powerful and vibrant campaign was to have a culture and a community where volunteers would feel welcome, be a part of, and make the campaign a key part of their life for a few months. What this burst of energy and the money that Leroy was talking about allowed them to do was to rent out a campaign office on Auckland's K Road in the heart of Chloe's community. But it didn't necessarily appear like an obvious thing to do at the time. Yeah, the office was one of the best things we did on that campaign. And it was such a big call. We yeah, I was skeptical of it early, which I'm, I, I learned so much about that, right? But you're right, it was a big call. It was a really big call, and it really came from Chloe. Chloe wanted a space. I think, I think a space that people can feel a sense of ownership over is one of the most neglected parts of particularly bootstrapped progressive campaigns. We really underestimate how much it means for people to feel that sense of ownership. And I mean, if you look at other historical organizational models and, you know, I'm, the youth thing, I, like the churches and unions are not massively historical, but, you know, they have legacies and they've continued in certain ways and they haven't necessarily reflected on um, what it means to evolve in certain places and spaces you know like trades halls and churches spaces that people can congregate and and practice a sense of routine is fundamental so you know this was our church it was our clubhouse it was our place to congregate and to practice community building so yeah having having a space that was ours that we could store things at where we didn't have to constantly second guess where people knew that they could come and things would be occurring and to some people in their individual journeys that could be a safe space from whatever was going on at home or you know the day at work or whatever but ultimately providing a kind of physical manifestation of the co was was really really important to me 
And I really wanted that. I kind of really believe in the value of an in-person space and having a place where we can do things, a place that was our own where we could experiment and where it was low-key to hold events where we didn't have to jump through hoops and organize stuff. And get a key. It's just so easy to cut that out of when you're, when you're running, you know, multiple. At one point we had 40 events in one week. Yeah. When you're not having to ask for the key or create like logistics around where to go for all of those things, yeah. Yeah. that just takes away the barrier to entry for those. So, and yeah. So the, the, the original thought was was a big step to take. Yeah. yeah, really big step to take. Took a while to find a space that would let us just be there through an election, and we took a while to look for that. And but we signed on, and even then, it was. It, was always going to be a really huge part of our budget but especially when we signed on and we took a lot of crap for it like people online when they saw we had an office were like there's a complete waste of money they clearly have enough money we did not at that time especially but it entirely paid off it meant that we had a space where we could store our billboards yeah that's that's right in terms of other just community building events it's amazing how much the projector and a white wall mm-hmm. and a, a, a bunch of old couches that like Literally, people could feel like a big sort of community lounge to come and just chat about the election and the state of the country and stuff. That was just such a fun thing to do. And that's, you know, that should almost be a, a public service that's created somewhere because that, that just felt so right and so easy and, and, and fun by the end of it. Honestly, it was the closest thing that I had for it was church. It was like, you know, a far more badass version of like youth group. <laughs> especially something that Chloe was really keen on that I was like, this, the cost of this will make it prohibitive. Chloe wanted street frontage. She wanted a place where we could be right there with the people. Small business experience coming coming through to help and raise Made so much difference. One, we just got this giant billboard on Karanghapi Road right there. And the amount of people who just walked past and saw us there, even if they didn't come in, even if they didn't have any other interaction with the campaign, if even if they were just going past on the bus or driving, they saw that there were people there working. And so much of this campaign was about visibility. It was about being seen. It was about proving that this campaign was real. This wasn't something that could just be dismissed. And every time people went past that office and saw it, saw that we were on the ground, that there was this brick and mortar actual store where we were doing work that showed that we were serious this wasn't just like a flight of fancy that we were there doing the work and so that i think was really important but you're you're absolutely right the the role that tim backed and a whole um, community of you know auckland urban liberal artistic people who really wanted to jump in and, and, and do something for Chloe. Yeah, it was cool to see really that, that artistic community getting behind Chloe because she cares so much about that representation and it was cool to see that coming back the, the other way in, in, a, in a broader community that was really supportive of, of what we were doing. For me, that was also an opportunity to showcase some fun and give people a different insight into the campaign. And I guess, again, as the the face of that campaign, myself and in turn, give people another opening to get involved and engaged in it. And when Max organised the drag show as well, that was something that Mm. it was just like, yes, you know how to run a drag show, please run us a drag show. And he did that. And just kind of, it's another example of just giving people the trust to just do their thing and do it well in support of this amazing candidate and that just paid off for us again and again and again. Look folks, I, I think that it's pretty damn obvious that the stuff, uh, by the way, here, queer, proud, uh, I hope they all... I just honestly... 
um, in all seriousness, this has been fucking majestic. Um, this has been the best. This campaign is everything that I ever could have wanted. Uh, this is what community feels like, folks. You know, politics isn't this stuff that just happens down in Parliament where you have to feel as though it's done by these people who are professionals who are pretending they know what they're doing. Because they don't. They're all making it up. I can tell you that much. <laughs> So please, I implore you, help us make history, please. We're asking you this election to vote Green twice. And again, those, those micro donations for things like that and people chipping through the, through the website or just buying a ticket, that's powerful as well, right? That is literally the audience of, of the city in a way get, getting together and being more powerful than the big corporates that, that can do 10 grand donations to to some of the bigger parties. To build a durable political movement, a culture like this will need to come with it in some form. And so for other candidates, what these sorts of events could be will depend on them as individuals and what represents them best. So that was really cool that we could convert that into a space that built a community. And my gosh, it was important. You know, yeah. that, that, that office as the way of really galvanising and making it easy to campaign. I've been completely converted from a sceptic where I was like, oh, we should be very distributed and not be just having one place to be coming to all the time. For a small urban electorate like Auckland Central, it was the perfect fit and cannot recommend it more highly for campaigning. Several weeks out from election day, COVID-19 reared its ugly head in Auckland and the city went back into a level three lockdown. Door knocking was off, the office was closed, and we'd finished ringing all the phone numbers we had of voters. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern delayed the election by four weeks, and so the campaign had to keep going. Yeah, I, I can remember when, when lockdown really kicked in, worrying about meeting new volunteers and introducing them to the, the campaign without the ability to go out and have coffees. And actually that became a lot easier because there was so much time for everyone that it made it really easy to have a Zoom core conversation. And it made it amazing, amazing for us all to learn each other's names. Because of Zoom and literally seeing everyone's names on the screen, that helped our community building no end because you put a face to a name and could actually meet uh, people and involve them in a whole lot of sort of activities once a week where we'd get together and, and write postcards together and, and keep that energy up and keep that community building up even when you couldn't meet people in person. Luckily for Nico and data coordinators Cam and Evan, the lockdown actually came at a perfect time. The thing that went kind of wrong that then turned out to work really well for us was around data entry, and it's like so super boring, right? But we um, ended up having sort of a, a balance with our volunteers where we were doing so much door knocking and also letter delivery and stuff that was active and outdoors and, and community-led that we then ended up having uh, quite a big pile of the... The, the sort of homework, the, the data entry stuff, the processing of, of lots of the, the conversations hadn't been done. And we were getting real stress from Wellington backwards and forwards of, oh, you're doing lots of activity, but we're not really seeing it come through <laughs> in, in the numbers. And I was stressing about this and our data guys were stressing about it because it was becoming really overwhelming, this pile of stuff. And then we went into lockdown and it could not have been a more perfect activity to have left to do because without the ability to talk to voters and to do stuff out in the community, 
we could suddenly switch to this really digital, agile, online way of still helping out, mm. which was to process all the data entry together, all with apps, getting out our phone, all at home in, in lockdown. And so that was an amazing rebalancing that 2020 sort of gave us, yeah. was actually moments of pause during the campaign where we, sh- where we could catch up on on some of the, the things during campaigning that you need to do, but you don't always feel like you've got the time to do. One of my favorite things to read about past social movements or campaigns are the stories about when things went a little bit wrong or things didn't go quite as planned. Even the best organizers and the most experienced people face this. And so while Chloe's campaign was really well executed, of course there were some events which didn't go quite as hoped. And I think it's important to include a bit about them so we don't conceive of campaigns as being these magical, impossible things that we can never match. One of the events then that fell a little bit flat was a fundraiser, which they considered cancelling. <laughs> we didn't cancel it, we did it, and it was a great success, you. Um, yeah, I don't know, people just didn't want to come. <laughs> this is like what I was saying before, is that we didn't have anything kind of uh, riding on one event or one you know, announcement or anything. Yeah, we tried to organise a film fundraiser and we didn't sell that many tickets and we were like, ifing and erring if it would be a bad look to run it and have not that many people or whether we should just give the tickets away to our volunteers or whether that would be rude to the people who donated. And we ended up going ahead with it. I think we sold... We made some money off it and it was kind of a nice evening and it turned out to be the night that we went into the second lockdown. So I really was glad in the end that we did it because it was nice to all be together on that night before we kind of were locked in our homes for another two weeks. Um, but Yeah, but that's a sign of the times, right? I, I remember even five years ago, film fundraisers were the thing for political parties and it was such an exciting way of, of getting mm-hmm. uh, people together to chip in something really casually and, and get a movie out of it. I think online, you know, streaming and stuff has changed that a little bit and definitely COVID has changed that. And yeah, it just sort of peaked. It's not as much of a, a thing for campaigns anymore. So yeah, it just wasn't the thing that people wanted to support. It's re- it was really easy to support Chloe's campaign. So I don't think people needed like another thing on top of that. The comedy fundraiser worked super, super well and the drag fundraiser worked super, super well because people knew Chloe was an active part of those. Like she performed in the comedy show, so people kind of were coming to see her mm-hmm. and there were all these other draws and it was something that you could only see live and it was only there. I think the film fundraiser seemed a little bit less personal, a little bit less interactive or a little bit less special. The political science around election campaigns has produced this idea called a bandwagon effect. It's kind of an obvious thing, but it's really important for outsider campaigns to be aware of. Basically means that if you're a smaller party or a new candidate, people need to believe that voting for you is worthwhile, that you have a chance to win, and that their vote for you won't be wasted on someone who isn't going to win. In other words, you need to create a bandwagon of political momentum that voters want to jump on and cruise with you to victory. And so with a Labour candidate pushing the idea that voting for Chloe could split the left-wing vote and let the right-wing in, creating this bandwagon effect was especially key. So how did the campaign try and do this? Well, we've heard through their field operation, high voter contact, through billboards and digital ads, and through Chloe's appearances in the media, they could set their own narrative. But there was something else that would demonstrate that she had a chance at winning, a good poll result. The core team thought that a poll that showed Chloe within about 10% of the lead candidate would be enough to create that bandwagon effect. The first one landed on September the 19th. It had Labour's Helen White in first with 42.3%, 
Nationals Emma Mello on 26.6% and Chloe on 24.2%, 18% behind Labour's candidate. Like a true left winger though, Nico didn't trust the poll. Did Depends you? what you count in that poll. And so, it, and when it's that small and such a young electorate, yeah. I, I was always very skeptical. I don't know, this is a big thing about landlines and, and cell phones and stuff. But when you look at the 17,000 people living in the city centre and you wonder, are they really the kind of people that are, that are um, connected with polling companies? Maybe, but how, how sort of statistically accurate is that going to be in such a small, very strange electorate? Yeah, we, as a campaign team, we definitely could see signs of hope in the poll, particularly in the undecided number. That was pretty hopeful that there was a large constituency that seemed pretty much like the kind of transient young people that might say they're undecided, but at the last minute get inspired by a, a pretty energetic campaign. Uh, so we saw that we saw that in the poll, even though, yes, we were, we, we were behind and it, and it looked like a clear third, even though there was a bit of a three-way tie. Some of the opposition parties had really tried to say that we weren't in it, that there was no point. Then people had really pushed the vote-splitting narrative, had really said that there was... And that really lowered the stakes for the poll for us. It really meant that a result that showed us down but not out was seen as a win. People were really ready to see that as, oh, they were wrong, they're not just going to be dismissed. This isn't going to be the previous election where the Greens hadn't tried to win it. This was slightly better than that right this next clip is from an instagram video chloe posted as soon as the poll dropped everybody told us that it was impossible but here we are and what that has shown really clearly is that this is a three-way race and so i do think that we managed to spin that and people took from that that it wasn't oh chloe's really far in third is that there are three people running in auckland central and that was kind of all we needed from that first poll even though my immediate reaction wasn't yay when I saw that, you know? Yeah, because we'd also heard before that that Labour had a poll that had Chloe hit. You so heard that? Was, yeah, that yeah. was some gossip we'd sort of heard around. You hear a lot of stuff on a campaign, yeah, but yeah. we had heard Can that. Can we hear it from Hugo? Well, it, it wasn't particularly a trustworthy source, so <laughs> that's why we were like a little bit hopeful. And, and what we heard from that poll matched with what I felt all the volunteers were picking up at yeah. the, the doorstep was that it felt at least that there were a third of people at the doorstep, uh, if not sometimes you know 50 or 60% of people that would say, oh, I'm, I'm definitely open to voting, voting Chloe, and I'm, I'm pretty inspired by her, and she's, she's, she's doing some great work, and I want to support good politicians in this country. We need more of them, sort of regardless of the, the wider politics and stuff. And I was surprised that that wasn't reflected in, in that first poll that came out. A few weeks later... On October the 4th, just before voting began, there was a second poll. This time, Chloe was just 9% behind Helen White, who was down to 35 points, with Chloe on 26. With the Labour Party nationally polling about 50%, White's score was significantly below that, and Nationals' Emma Mello was neck and neck with Chloe in second. You could tell by the reaction of the other candidates that they were not happy with that poll. And that usually makes you feel good in a campaign if your opposition is stressing out, worrying, not seeming confident. That made us think, this isn't a one-off. This isn't something that... They don't have secret polling that they're very comfortable with this, right? It, it was a very clear sign that this is the way the campaign's going and we should just stick to our guns. On the back of this result... Journalist Simon Wilson wrote an article in the Herald outlining how only 1,400 people needed to switch their vote from Helen to Chloe 
for Chloe to win the seat. He also wrote, quote, Voters in Auckland Central who want progressive reform in this country have many reasons to vote for Swarbrick and hardly any to vote for White. If you're a Labour-inclined progressive in Auckland Central or elsewhere, this is the moment to help them take that chance. I mean, I think it was a great article from Simon. Um, I think there was a lot of people, especially towards kind of the end of the campaign, who started to get on board and be like, oh, if, you know, the polling showed that we could do it, it was only 1,400 people, it stopped being this really far-fetched thing, and people thought, oh, it's going to be worth it to kind of put my weight behind this, show my support for this, it's not going to be embarrassing, you know, and it would kind of open the door for a lot of people to come out and support. And you saw more and more people being like, they've really given it a go here. Chloe's clearly the best candidate. I'm going to put my neck out and support her. And all of that made a little bit of difference. Mm -hmm. We focused a lot on this campaign, on our own campaign's credibility. We knew Chloe had it, but getting, giving people permission to vote for her. And so all of that polling was being like, look, there are people voting for her. You're not going to be throwing away your vote. That moved more and more people towards being like, this is a race. This is someone I want to support. I want to vote for the person who will be best to represent me in Parliament. Yeah, and and that's what articles like that and stories about momentum and even simple things like billboards and the number of billboards you have up. We, we had an awesome billboard team with, with Jeremy and Tyson doing doing all the, the organising and just very slick installation of them whenever anyone requested it. That very, very simple traditional campaign stuff helps tell, tell the story of we're trying hard. We really mm-hmm. want to go for it and there's a whole lot of people helping out there's a whole lot of people who are brave enough in Ponsonby to put up a, a billboard for Chloe and the Green Party. That that really helps with that that whole idea of momentum and, and yeah. the whole idea of it coming together. Everything we did in this campaign, whether it was sharing photos of how packed the office was, all of the billboards that were on people's fences, that's both good for visibility, but also that's an endorsement of those people. People in their street, in their neighbourhood, see that they are voting for Chloe and they think, oh, I'm like them. I also live in this street. All mm. of that stuff helps. Seeing our door knockers out who had their bright green vests on so that you knew who they were when you saw these people going around your neighbourhood or around the neighbourhoods you're walking through. Yeah, kind of every time we were seen, every time people drove past the office, every time someone saw something related to our campaign it was both chloe is running but there's this movement behind her and, and it's a hyper local movement yep. it's not it's def, it's definitely not something run out of wellington which is i think a fear of that that new zealanders in auckland have of political parties that there are these strange groups in the beltway that just fund ads and send different brands with different colors and they try and confuse me and, and bombard me with stuff and they're not even from here the, the opposite was totally true of uh, this campaign, and if you were an Auckland Central voter, you saw a very local thing happening, and that's a real campaign currency. The final big peak of the campaign was a rally held in the CBD of Auckland, where they planned to mobilise hundreds, maybe even a thousand people to the CBD. Chloe would speak, James and Madam and the Green Party leaders would speak, and everyone would march down to the voting booth. News clips, radio stories, and social media photos of hundreds of people gathering to vote was going to be the last signal that yes, your vote will count if you vote for Chloe. As we all gathered, Nico realised that there were too many of us wearing Green Party high-vis vests. It looked like the crowd was entirely made up of marshals. 
Yeah, well, that was an interesting little moment because I we did have a lot of vests and people get excited about the vests because... They want to show their part or something. They, they want to show, yeah, it's a little bit of a tribal symbol and I definitely noticed more people than are usually involved in the campaign or, or volunteers are putting on the vests as, as if that's the thing you do when you arrive. Um, I, I was pretty sure that lots of those volunteers didn't really understand it to the general public. It looks like a whole lot of organisers getting ready for a massive, like... Yep. Um, <laughs> Uh, crowd they're about to control that that was probably yeah just some some careful sort of rebalancing to yep. to, to make sure that you know we, we had our 10 marshals and we had a whole lot of people turning up we just didn't need all of everyone to look like a marshal so um, yeah i think yeah. when we envisioned that rally that we held it was to bring all of these members of the public and people who are curious about the campaign together to hear chloe speak and to hear marama speak and to hear james speak and would do this whole thing um and then I think it kind of became more of a rally for our supporters and our volunteers to be like, look at this amazing what thing we've done. Of course that's what it is. I mean, just, <laughs> yeah, and it was great. And we, all, we got all of these young people to go and vote who might not have voted otherwise. And we did this whole thing. Um, but yeah, yeah so that was... So March to the polling booth right after the rally. Yes. And that was, that was, felt like a great thing to do. Right in the heart of the campaign is to, to have a moment that we could really all build up to. And we got media and we really like invigorated the supporters and it was during the... Once the um, voting was open, which is a really important time to have everyone energised and stuff. So I think it was good in the end, but yeah, another one where it wasn't quite our expectations. Kia ora, good evening. Welcome to News Hub Decision 2020 election night. If this election campaign is anything to go by, we are in for the night of our lives. A wild, wild ride. There is one second to go. There are no seconds to go. The polls are closed. The election is on. Let's get it on. Let's go. So if I can be totally honest, election night, about an hour before we got the results coming through. I was at Leroy's apartment, which is just around the block from uh, the election night party. And I, for the first time, had the realization that if we didn't win, there would have to be a form of conversation with everybody. And I didn't know how I would have that conversation. I, in absolute bloody mindedness, hadn't entertained the, any idea that we might not win until that point in time. So it was, yeah, it was, it was quite weird to grapple with that and be like, well, shit. <laughs> the first results that came through, I think she was up by 100 votes. We're going to check in on Auckland Central yeah. and Chloe Swarbrick, who of course is in a race with Labour's Helen White and Nationals Emma Mello. Chloe, can you hear me all right? It's Corinne Dan here. Kia ora, Corinne, I can. Kia ora. All right, let's talk your situation through first. You are in a very close race here. Uh, Helen White is just we in are. the lead we with about 20%. Yes, Absolutely. you're about 100 behind. What's the feeling? Really close case. The feeling is that we left everything out there on the floor. We ran a campaign that we are incredibly proud of. We built a community along the way. And we will just continue uh, to see as these results roll in. Because right now, as we always knew, it's anybody's game. And it always was going to come down to turnout. And I was like, well, it was nice while well, it lasted. You know, it was nice to be ahead for that brief period but now you know things are coming down and i was like oh yeah these are just like you know the right booths have come in early but chloe kept doing media and i just kept telling her 
you know, it's it's early, it's early. It felt really cool because Leroy um, didn't think that we could do it uh, at that point when we'd had that conversation. Like he, he tried to keep it quite close and guarded. Um, and then throughout the night, other people kept coming up, getting more and more excited. And I got messages from more and more people being like, you did great. And then it just kind of stuck around, but the lead didn't expand. It kind of was between 100 and 500 ahead the whole night no matter how many other votes came in that margin was really really sticky we're at 91.7 percent currently 410 votes ahead so it's looking pretty good given that we have been at this place since about 15 percent of the votes were counted and that excitement was amazing to sort of swim amongst right it was like a big growing wave of positivity throughout the night and you can even hear on the microphone just the screaming by the end which was pretty intense but like a whole lot of young people were really excited about being part of their first political thing ever and then it actually you know erupting on a certain evening from being something hopeful something they were looking forward to to actually really turning into it happening the green lantern has been lit over Auckland Central, 9,060 votes to 8,568. Right now, we are calling it for Chloe. Auckland Central's newest MP. The only video I took during the evening was at the moment when we realised we'd probably won the campaign. The audio from the video pretty much sums up what it felt like. It's going to turn out, but I've got to tell you, in the history of MMP, no third party has ever won a seat without the endorsement of a major party leader. And there, and I just a little interlude. Chloe, how are you doing? out of special vote forms and we had to call out the electoral commission and remind them that maybe more people than they thought would turn up were here to vote. Because I think you all know when it comes to the status quo, I don't want you to vote. We have reminded people of their power and that never left. That never left. Like, peek behind the curtain, we'd left. Like, I'd got, we'd got Chloe out of there because we were like, there's not going to be a result tonight. The specials, we're going to decide it, and which they did. Again, for international listeners, special votes are a mixture of people who are voting from overseas and people turning up on the election day to vote, having not pre-registered. They get counted over the next two weeks, and though whilst they usually favour the Greens, because people doing special votes often skew younger, the 400 or so margin that Chloe was up on election night was still a little bit too tight to be 100% confident. But those would be another few weeks. Emma Mello had called to concede, you know, which was really good of her, but we hadn't heard from anyone else. And I'd taken Chloe back to our other place and we were just kind of waiting about to figure out we we're going to go to the after party and we got a call to say, you have to come back. The people are, people are just cheering and celebrating and we had to kind of get Chloe on stage um, with the co-leaders to be kind of, guys, this night's been amazing. Everyone get home safe. At the end of an incredible... 
incredible campaign. And then I remember we went to where our after party was and on the way there was when the network started to call it. So we got push alerts from Radio New Zealand and stuff saying Chloe Swarbrick's one Auckland Central. And I remember just being in an Uber on Hobson Street and I started crying. <laughs> and just being like, trying to explain to the driver, being like, no, it's good, don't worry. It's all fine. It's just been a big night. Um, I was giddy, but I am, and weirdly, I guess the same way that I entered the fray of the campaign and very seriously and earnestly being like, well, of course we're going to take it. When we did, um, there wasn't so much a sense of arrival as, okay, cool, and now the next thing. So I became really focused on, yeah, how do we begin to orient around what our next goals are? And the next day, you know, I called Nikki Kay, who was the, you know, former MP for Auckland Central and the local councillors and just started making a plan for how uh, we show that we're really serious about it. <laughs> we're, I had to convince Nico to come to the election night party because he just wanted to be at home on his laptop. Yeah, because I've hated every other election night party for exactly that because you it's such an exciting time, right? And it's it's cool to, to, to finish a whole bit of political energy with uh, a party where you get very clear results and get to see everyone who's been involved in that and kind of celebrate or commiserate. But everyone asks you the whole time what's going on because that's what they've done throughout the rest of the campaign is what's going on and where should I be and like, are we doing okay? I definitely did this a lot to Nico on the night, for which I now apologise. I kept asking him if he knew whether or not we'd won and what the hell was going on. And he was just walking around the party with his noise-cancelling headphones on, staring at the TV coverage on his phone and kept looking at me blankly. And that happens a lot during an election night party, particularly when you've suddenly, you know, got 300 people at a party, all quite excited about a result, and yet you're unable to know because you haven't watched any of the coverage yourself because you've been talking to everyone else. That's where I had the sense of, I need headphones on, I need to not be at the party, I need to find out what's going on. And so for a political geek, it's a fraught time, election night party. I'm, I'm yet to nail my strategy. So why did they win? Well, the only way to properly find out would be to conduct a survey of every person that voted for Swarbrick and see what their reason was. But we definitely don't have enough money for that. Finding and understanding causality in what we do in political organising is obviously really important. We want to do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Clearly, in 2020, there were some external factors outside of the campaign's control that helped, like the popular incumbent Nikki Kay stepping down. People were also voting on a referendum to legalise cannabis, which likely led to a slightly increased turnout amongst the young and the marginalised. But then it was Chloe who had been such a consistently strong advocate for drug law reform and she was probably the unofficial spokesperson for the Yes campaign. And the whole reason they'd run in this electorate was because the demographics seemed so ripe for it. And from the data available so far, the biggest vote for Chloe came from people in city centre apartments who were mostly younger. And interestingly, this is the part of the city where we couldn't do much voter contact because it's impossible to get into these massive city centre apartment blocks. But then again, by the campaign's end, they'd spoken to about 11,000 voters. And that's nearly one in three people who voted in Auckland Central. But for Leroy... There's kind of something inherent to the candidates and the political moment and the larger campaigns and everything that does reach people. And I think this was a campaign where we ran a really incredible field campaign. We did reach a lot of people. We had a lot of events. We did a lot of leafleting and postcarding and trying to reach all those people you know we did all of the things that we needed to do multiple times over it's really hard to identify 
if we took one of those elements out, what potentially could have changed? And that's, you know, the value of all of these compounding, um, amazing, creative feats of everybody coming together and contributing their bits. But there was, it's just a demographic that was kind of crying out to see themselves represented, to kind of have something to vote for. There were 6,000 more votes in 2020 than there were in 2017. And I think those people just had someone to vote for. The Labour candidate got basically the same amount of votes in 2017 and 2020 when the Greens candidate kind of got 10,000 more. So, Which is probably a bit of the missing million, right? Yeah, we we mm. talked about that as, as a country a few few elections ago, really. I think the, the missing million are quite hard to get because they're not just one group. But there probably is a pocket of them in Auckland Central where they are a, a transient casual workforce that are like quite happy to live in the city centre. They care a little bit about like housing and security. They care a little bit about like mental health stuff. They definitely care about climate, environmental, and and issues around air quality in the city centre. And and Chloe like definitely spoke to all of those things and enough in an inspiring and intelligent way that that just like totally blows actually any ground campaigning out of the water. If you can have a candidate that matches with what the demographics in a city centre area are looking for, then then they all come out and get excited. So it's, it's that simple, really. Yeah. And I think, let, let's all be honest, it's 90% Chloe is the reason that mm-hmm. uh, uh, we won. It, that is all down to her being such a, a talented, special politician for our times that really resonates on so many of the issues in a part of New Zealand that is very conscious and open to those things. That is, that's really the reason why we won. But then it was close. So you can cut the numbers in lots of different ways, and I definitely think... And, and this is a useful way to think about campaigns, actually, is that campaigns never 90% of the work. It, it's often the candidates and, and the media and other narratives that are at play that, that swing a lot of things in politics. But campaign, campaigns really help with that last 10%. And when it, when it gets close, like it, like it did in this one, you can definitely make a really clear case that all the volunteer effort, if it hadn't happened, and we hadn't have talked to a lot of marginal voters in Ponsonby and we hadn't delivered thousands of postcards and, and direct mail to, to people in the, the city centre, uh, those people wouldn't have seen an active local campaign and they wouldn't have quite come out in the, in the same numbers. So it's definitely accumulation of all the things together. But I think it was just absolute bloody mindedness, perhaps my biggest strength in it. I have always, and this has been my driving force to get involved in politics, like I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. Um, I am everything around the way that I operate and everything else defies those rules. Chloe would always say that the campaign wasn't about her, but it wouldn't have happened without her. Just things like she has a huge social presence, one of the largest in the country. It's like her and Jacinda and Winston Peters. <laughs> and you, that's invaluable. Her media presence, the amount of coverage and attention she gets. The campaign was about Chloe no matter what the other candidates did, it was about her. Mm. It was her who inspired all of those young people to get out and volunteer and give their time and have conversations and actually go and vote. It was her that got people to actually, you know, yeah, chip in, help out where they could, to donate furniture to the office, all of those things. Um, yeah, so Chloe Sobrick won Auckland Central because of Chloe. Nico is also keen to include a brief discussion about the privilege of even being able to campaign in the first place. And it's part of the reason why we're making this podcast, actually, to make the understanding, skills, knowledge and experience super easy for people to pick up. 
It shouldn't just be left to people with heaps of time who can do heaps of reading or watch heaps of docos. These sorts of lessons should be easily available and that's what we're hoping to do. Having, having three white guys really, really just talk, talk about the detail of, of campaigning in this way is, is a massive privilege. And yet at the same time, I also feel it's almost a bit of an obligation that to fight the patriarchy and to fight racism and, and also some of the structural inequities, this is, some, this is sometimes the best place for privileged white people to, to actually get involved is to try and change the system in their spare time uh, and, and with as much sort of enthusiasm as they can. And, and that's an interesting thing to sort of critique in, in terms of who, who comes to, to a campaign team and who has the time to participate. And that's what we're really grateful about is that overall the, the volunteer base was very diverse and came from an amazing collection of people across the city and different age demographics. But we're very conscious that the, the people who spend lots of the time at, at the core can only do that because of a, a whole lot of socioeconomic uh, conditions. So it, it's, it's important that we, we continue to organise in a way that over time makes us a broader and broader movement. And I hope that that and the you know core group of a dozen, two dozen people and then the hundreds that were involved on the periphery, that any one of those people, if they were to choose to be involved as a candidate in future, would model those same principles of community building. The thing that I hope that we have started to showcase is that with a candidate and a campaign that was driven by here are the things that we really care about and that we really believe in and that this is bigger than any one person, uh, you have something that can be replicated time and again across towns and cities around the country. But also it means that uh, there is almost an inbuilt thinking of what succession is. Uh, and perpetuation that goes beyond an individual and how do we keep producing these wins for people where they begin to get greater belief and, and faith in our ability as regular people to organize and challenge power and I hope that just you know I, I feel as though the term authenticity has just been you know it's almost a buzz nowadays when it comes to politics but it, I, I just hope it's that it's that sense of kind of shared purpose and belief in our capacity to change things if we do work together look i am just so beyond proud of everything that we have managed to achieve with this campaign and um, it has been impeccable i've spoken to folks who've been involved in the green party team for a very long time who have spoken about how impassioned they have felt seeing young faces in the audience tonight we fought for something and we might have just made it happen <laughs> So I want you to remember this moment when anybody tells you that it cannot be done. Fano, Fano. <laughs> this, this is what progressive politics looks like. <laughs> we have reminded people of their power and that never left. That never left. So folks, this is the start of not just a moment, but a movement. We keep going. We keep going. 
Look around the room tonight, guys, because this is something to be proud of, and it doesn't end here. I love you all so much, and I'm so proud of what we've done. Thank you very much. That's it for another episode of Blueprints. You know what I'm going to say, and I'll keep saying it every week. Please leave us a five-star review on your podcast app. It really does help other people find the show, and we want everyone who's working toward a better future to pick up these lessons from the people who've gone before them. On next week's episode, we're going to move across the Tasman and to another inside strategy, this time from the Queensland Greens, as their candidate, Amy McMahon, became the MP for South Brisbane in the 2020 state election. Thanks to Masarima and Clone Records for the title music, and thanks also to Ethan Hunter for his music.